Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good morning, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, February 15th, and I'm Kristen Baird-Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's special breakfast forum, which also is the annual Bolton Memorial Forum on National Politics, today featuring a conversation with U.S. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Over the last few years, Senator Manchin has emerged as one of the most important members of the U.S. Senate. In a closely divided Senate, the self-described centrist, moderate, conservative Democrat has often found himself casting a crucial swing vote on high-profile legislative priorities. Working with Americans Together, a new organization creating a plat platform for moderate voices around the country, Manchin recently began a nationwide listening tour to meet with others around the to meet with voters around the country. His goal to hear their concerns and discuss the importance of middle ground as a place where work can actually get done. Today's appearance here at the City Club of Cleveland is part of that tour. Senator Manchin has represented West Virginia in the U.S. Senate since 2010, when he was appointed to the seat previously held by Robert Byrd. He served as West Virginia governor and Secretary, State, Secretary of State previously and got his start in electoral politics in 1982 when elected to the West Virginia House of Delegates. Moderating today's conversation is City Club CEO Dan Molthrop. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and the City Club team will do its best to work it into the second half of the program. Members, guests, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Senator Joe Manchin. Thank you, thank you. So, so, Senator, before we get going, welcome to Cleveland. Oh, great to be here, Dan. It's really good to have you. Um, and I, I, we want to correct the record. You whispered yeah. to me that you weren't appointed never, to the Senate. I would never take an appointment for anything. <laughs> you got to win it. You got to win it. No, no appointments. Just no. Uh, there's that I've line about no appointments, but I never yeah. took them. Yeah. Okay. And there's been some disappointments along the way too. Them. Yeah. Um, so um, you're on a listening tour. Uh -huh. What are you listening for? Well, I as we go around the country, my daughter Heather. Where's Heather? Is Heather here? There's my daughter Heather. And I got my, my colleague, John, John Cotts, with me. John's been with me quite a, quite a long time. And then I've got Marcus and, and, uh, and Gardner's here. But anyway, let me just say this. We've been going around listening, finding out why Americans seem to be so mad at each other or why they think they're so divided, because I'm going to tell you something you're not. Washington's making you pick a side. They've weaponized the political process. It's not supposed to be that way. It really isn't. Whether you have a D by your name, an R by your name, or an I by, by your name should not identify who you are as a person. It should maybe identify some of your ideology or philosophy and, and how you approach the political or the uh, uh, public, uh, public uh, discussions. 
But it's gotten to the point now that if you're on one identification or the other, the other side must be your enemy. And there's no compromise. There's no even talking to each other. That's what we're hearing. So the more we keep talking, the more we keep hearing, people don't want that. They feel homeless and helpless because it's not the grand old party they belong to. Or it's not the good, responsible, compassionate, democratic party they belong to. They just don't recognize it anymore. And so what do you do? Where do you find that middle? How do you bring people back? Uh, And you're seeing people afraid of getting primaried, and they'll just about do anything Mm -hmm. to win an election. I've never... This is not the best job I've ever had, I assure you. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Governor was the best job I ever had because that was a job where you could... I I didn't want to go to bed at night, and I couldn't wait to get up in the morning. I could change someone's life every day. Just, man, you just felt so, so good. The Senate's not like that. The Senate, you know what, it took a while. I I don't recommend anybody that was a governor to go to the Senate unless you can get your mind right and you have the patience of Joe because as a governor, you know, I was head of the National Governors Association. I couldn't tell you who was a Democrat or Republican walking in. We all had the same problems. We had education problems. We had welfare problems. We had road problems. We had energy problems. We had, had, and we all helped each other. Jeb Mm -hmm. Bush was a dear friend of mine on education. Mitt Romney is a dear friend of mine on health care. And we just, you know, and I I could help them on on crisis management and things of that sort because I went through that. And everyone was willing to help so you could find a solution. That's the way I was raised. So now this is so foreign to me. And uh, I just think that it's going to be changed from here. It's not going to be changed from Washington. You have to understand, Dan, that's a business. We think it's basically politics. It's Mm -hmm. not politics. They're using politics as a shield for big business. They're using politics? Who's they? The, the parties, the party structures, the DNC, the RNC, mm-hmm. that's a front for very large business, billion-dollar businesses. Let me ask you a very direct question, Senator. Um, the, the idea of a, uh, of a listening tour, somebody in, in your position yeah. who has been right in the middle of some very contentious votes in the Senate... Um, you've kind of purposely put, put yourself... No, I didn't, Dan. Okay. I did okay. not. I'm going to make okay. that very there, clear. There's a perception. I have a perception that you purposefully well, did that, but go ahead. It, it, that'd be Disabuse different. me, It'd be please. different. No, no. It'd be different yeah. if you didn't check my... Since I've been in public service, I've never been accused of being a good Democrat, and I've never been accused of not liking a, uh, a Republican. I, I get along with everybody. So my vote has always been center, and no one ever controlled it. So I, I'll give you a perfect example. When I first go to the Senate in November, it had to be January, early January, February of 2011. And Harry Reid, that time, the majority leader for the Democratic Party, leading the Democrats, came to me and he said, this is going to be a party-line vote. Now, I've been involved. I've been a state legislator. I've been a state senator. I've been secretary of state, and I've been governor. And I never heard that term. This is part, that means we're going to do it by ourselves. I said, what does that mean, Harry? Well, we all got to vote for this bill. And I said, we do. I looked at the bill, and I came back and said, Harry, on my best day, I can't sell this crap in West Virginia. I couldn't sell on my best day. And I, I said, I consider myself a fairly good salesperson. And I said, I can't sell this to West Virginia. And he said, well, Joe, he says, uh, you know, this is a party line. I said, Harry, you didn't hire me. You can't fire me. I don't work for you. I'm not going to do it. And I just didn't. And they thought they could badger me. And so for about two or three months, they kept trying to put pressure. I said, guys, you can try all you want. I'd be more than happy to go back home. I'm not crazy about being here anyway. So don't threaten me. You can't threaten me. Well, they've tried every way possible from that time on, but it got to the point where Harry would just say, can you at least tell me how you're going to vote? Happy to tell you, and I'll tell you why I'm voting that way. 
Mm -hmm. about that. Then it got down to the point, can you just vote last? <laughs> I says, Harry, do you think anyone's going to follow me? Do you think anyone is going to vote like I do? So what happened is... West Virginia, leading the nation. <laughs> what happened was, it happened that way in 20, uh, the 117th Congress, starting in 2020, mm -hmm. became a 50-50 split. The United States Senate has never been split 50-50 evenly for that longer period of time in the history of our country since 1789. Never happened. It was just absolutely in the middle. So now, all of a sudden, everyone says, well, Chuck Schumer says uh, he was so excited the night of the election. And I'm thinking, you know, I really didn't, doesn't bother me who's the majority party or who's the minority party. Every senator has the same ability and opportunities. And, the, and the, the constitutional power is unbelievable anybody in the world. So the Senate is an unbelievable place if you want to do something. Anyway, so he said, uh, he said, I think we might win Georgia. And I'm thinking, well, no one thought we were going to win Georgia, or Democrats would, but it happened. Thanks to Donald Trump, Georgia went Democrat. And, uh, and he really was. It was, his, it was his involvement down there that changed it. Anyway, so then I said something to the week after I was talking to Chuck about something, and I said, Chuck, I really think we should be doing on, on fiscal responsibility. We talked about that. I talked about permitting processing in America. You can't build anything. Take so long. He says, well, Joe, you can probably do anything you want. And I said, I never thought what he was looking at. It. And then they kept, the joke was, Who's, which Joe's got the most power? Right. Okay. I never thought about that because I'm still one of 100. I never thought about that. I never would use it that way. But I never changed, so you said I positioned myself. I, I don't recommend it if you don't have a strong constitution. You have to believe what you believe because yeah. you can't believe the pressure that comes at you. And someone says, how do you handle pressure? I says, I don't change my, my approach. I don't change my, my beliefs or my ideology or my uh, approach to any uh, challenge we have in government because of my audience. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any pressure because it's the same. Mm -hmm. So that's pressure is basically when you're trying to play to the audience and be somebody you're not. Mm -hmm. That's the political pressure. So where I was going with the question okay. before you corrected me, and I appreciate the correction, <laughs> um, was really, I mean, there's, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of conversation about whether or not you are, in fact, exploring a third party run for the White House. I want to invite you to, to, yeah, to what, take, what, take Dan, that Dan, what I've seen is the system is broken. How do you fix it? I've come to the conclusion you can't fix it in Washington. My daughter came to me about a year ago, and she's been able to spend more time with her than I have since uh, she was in, still coming out of high school before she went to college. But I've enjoyed it, and she, she started digging into it. She says, do you know how the system works and what's going on? So I started putting two and two together that we're not going to change it there because the power is all within four, what we call four corners, which is the majority uh, leader and the minority leader in the Senate, mm -hmm. and the speaker and the minority leader in the House. And that's where all the, power, all the power has been cohesed around them, and they have it. And they're able to control it, and they control the money. So uh, the president, I will say this, President Biden, uh, which I've known for a long time, I voted for him and support him, is not the person I thought he was. And I've said this, how did he get so far to the left? I, I just can't figure it out. And I've told him this. We've had this discussion. So I'm not saying something new to you that he's not heard from me directly. And I said, Mr. President, I said, I swear to God that this is not where the country is. The country elected you because you were the one Democrat that could
pull things back together. We were getting so divided. And then as soon as you got here, you got pulled clear to the left, and a lot of the people you have in positions are very far left, and I says it's very, very tough to deal with them. Can you, can you be more specific about that? Which way? I mean, about, about like, Joe you, Biden. You want names or not? Well, more, more about, I mean, if, you, if, if there are names you want to, you, no, you, that are particular bugaboos, but, um, but well, really I'll, just I'll about policy, policies. Policies, yeah. the energy policy, okay? Fiscal policies, you name it, and things I'm very much uh, concerned about and things I have a little bit of knowledge about. You know, you cannot run this country unless you have energy dominance. You have to be energy independent. And that's above all of what we call all the above. You can't eliminate your way to a cleaner environment. You can innovate it with technology, but you can't just say, quit using coal, quit using gas, quit using oil. People are going to use, in sovereign countries, are going to use what they have laying in their backyard. Now, if you want them to use it the best possible way for our environment, which we all have a responsibility, then you better be developing new technologies and then use your trading, the strength of your trading policies to say, I can't tell you you got to do that, but if you do that, you're going to have access to our markets, which is the which is really the strength of America, strongest mm -hmm. economic markets in the world. And he and I have just had tremendous uh, disagreements, and we've had good, solid discussions. He knows where I'm coming from. So, you know, I killed the BBB bill because it was an overreach, $6 trillion. It was $6 trillion if it was a dollar. There was so much in the bill, and it took eight months. They just got the living crap beat out of me. But I just told him at the end of the Christmas, December 17th, I said, Mr. President, I can't do this. And I said, I've tried. There's some good things in every bill you see. But to a bill that's overreaching and that much money, and we'd already put $5.2 trillion in the market, $3.2 uh, in 2020, or yeah, when we first got the uh, uh, understanding that we had a pandemic on our hand, we were trying to keep ourselves from going into a, a, a financial crisis and a health crisis. And they were basically, everyone was looking back to when they were there in 2008 and 2009 with the financial crisis we had back then, the meltdown. And they didn't think Obama put enough money, enough aid from the federal government to get us out quick enough. They wanted to make sure they didn't make that mistake again. So did they overdo it? Yeah, they did it. But they did it intentionally trying to keep them from going into a, a recession, which we knew that could happen. So I said, Mr. President, I, on BBB, you came right back and it build was another. Build back better. Build back better. I said, I can't do it. This is a social, to total social realignment. And I said, the best way I can describe it, Mr. President, you and I are from the same vintage uh, he's a little older than I am, but we're in that same vintage. Yeah, you were like a freshman when he was a senior, something like that. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and I told him, I said, Mr. President, I said, you and I both remember very vividly. I was a, a young boy, I'll never forget, and, and, uh, and I remember uh, watching John Kennedy on, uh, give his inaugural speech in 1960 with my mother and father. And he said, that's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I said, Mr. President, if we pass this piece of legislation, which you say is your marquee legislation, you're going to change the psychic of this nation to how much more can my country do for me? And by God, I wasn't raised that way. I don't believe that, and I don't stand for that. People have to earn the way. Government should be your partner, not your provider. So, so, <laughs> so supporters of the president would, uh, might counter that uh, on this recent immigration bill, and border security in exchange for the, the deal that was, that was proposed mm -hmm. in the Senate, um, that he came back to the center. Absolutely, and that's good. First of all, if you want to blame Joe Biden, he's totally guilty as charged on opening up the border and making it what we have today. 
And I've told him I've been disagreeing with him from day one. But then when you talk to him, they said, you know, and I understand where they're coming from and his compassion he has for people. And he does. He's a compassionate person. He knew that we were in a pandemic, but the world was in a pandemic and he was trying to help those who are really, really struggling around the world. I don't think he ever intended that it would happen. He had no knowledge that this would happen, that we'd be inundated the way we have been. And on top of that, we don't have the ability to process all these people. So people are being the catch and release. And we'll mm -hmm. see you later, you know, court, you know, to adjudicate them, to find out if you really qualified for asylum. Let me make it very clear. We are a nation of immigrants. This country was built on immigration. And we can never, ever forget that. And if anything, we have to make sure that we strengthen the legal immigration that we have to get people here for the right reason and the right purpose. We have to do that. So you just can't just say, shut everything down, stop it all. But on the other hand, he waited that long. So I said, if you're upset at what he did and it caused these problems, if he did it intentionally, that's one thing. And if he didn't try to fix it, that would be another thing. But to have someone stand up and say, I don't want you to fix that right now, as dangerous as it is because it would help you in an election eight months from now, we shouldn't go eight minutes. We shouldn't go eight seconds more. It should have been, and I've urged him to declare a national emergency at the border until we get a handle. You have to. And uh, so I said, guilty as charged. Is this his problem? But if he's willing to say, I made a mistake and said, I support this bill, and we won't do it now because of politics, that's worse than what he did. Let me, while we're talking about those, uh, about the, the border, I want to bring up the other national security issues that have been linked to the crisis at the border okay. um, by your, your colleagues in Congress, um, which is aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, our, our community has been lucky enough to, to host uh, the ambassador, the Ukrainian ambassador She's to the United something. States. She's, she She's is good. something indeed, um, Oksana Markarova. And, she is something. Um, and our community She's is also, really a good person, too, just yeah. a genuine good person. Um, and we've also had a lot of conversations here um, about the situation in Gaza and Israel. Um, where do you stand? Let's start with Ukraine. I stand 1,000% behind Ukraine. I, uh, I've, been, I've been to Ukraine. I've, I've met with Zelensky. I've, I've seen the situation we're dealing with. The bottom line is the United States of America has never been, and I said in my lifetime, in my lifetime, I remember vividly the Vietnam War. I remember all the altercations we've been in, Iraq, Iran, all Afghanistan, uh, everything that we've been in, involved with has caused this problem around the world. This is, this is the first uh, intervention that we've been involved in a challenge such as this with the world turmoil, that I think is the most just thing that we've ever done in my lifetime. We're fighting and supporting, and we don't have to have our bloodshed to supporting a country that would like to have the same opportunity of life that we have. They want their freedoms, they want their independence, they want their democracy, everything that we're, and they're willing to put their life on the line. And we're able to show that Russia is not the big bad Russia that you might have thought or they wanted you to believe. They lost about 300 and 40,000 troops in the first 390 they put on the border. And uh, how do we let that happen? Well, first of all, when uh, he invaded Crimea 2014, we didn't, there wasn't a gunshot. There wasn't one, one, one shot fired. You just kind of, okay, here it is, it's yours. And then from there, you start taking the eastern part of the Donbass area, and we saw that coming, and we started basically training, and all of EU, uh, European Union, 
and our NATO allies were doing the same. So getting them up because the people wanted to fight for their independence. We saw that then. And then this unbelievable assault that he made on that country, unprovoked, just because his desire. And all the Baltic and everything we have, all of our NATO allies, the Baltic, especially from Poland all the way up through, uh, they're in concern. And, uh, and his main thing, what Putin knows that Donald Trump doesn't understand, and I've said this, Putin understands with NATO and allies, the superpower of the world is more than just having a super military and super uh, monetary, super economy. It's more than that. It's having basically people that are willing to fight and die with you when you're threatened. And fascism, as we've threatened World War II, we came out of that with a strong alliance, and we've kept that alliance together. Putin knows that. And I wish that former President Donald Trump would understand it as well as Putin understands it, because he wants to break that. And when Sweden came in, Denmark and all this, it just drove him completely over the edge, completely over the edge. And if you think he will stop when he, if he gets through Ukraine, they know he won't. They're strengthening themselves and wanting to make sure we throw a no, signal. But he just told Tucker Carlson that he's not interested. <laughs> Tucker's the only person I know that would believe that. <laughs> so uh, I, just, I, I just never been more committed. And we're not, Why do you think we're not spending money there, Dan. We're investing. That's the best investment we've ever made in the military. Well, if was, not, they're going to come, and you know, if they, if they, if they, if they were in NATO, if they go, touch one of our NATO countries, mm -hmm. our troops go in. Mm -hmm. Then we have our troops' blood, American blood, on the line. Well, and in, in terms of investments, too, Rob Portman, former Senator Rob Portman, when he was on the stage with the ambassador, um, noted that the Abrams tanks that we're sending are made in Lima, Ohio. Um, why do you think this is so uh, difficult for? your colleagues on the other side of the aisle? I don't know, you know, I can't say that, you know, for all Republicans, these are my friends and dear friends, really, and I have all the respect. How they've been led to believe or pushed, basically, not to stand up, but they did. First of all, we had 20 Republicans that voted with 40, uh, there was 22 Republicans that voted with 48 Democrats uh, just last week, this week here. Mm -hmm. uh, on aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's a $60 billion package for Ukraine. It's a $95 billion overall package. And they stood tall in the face of Donald Trump saying, this is awful. Don't do it. Don't spend money. Just take care of America. We're going to take care of America. This is the United States of America. We can walk and chew gum. We can help our friends too. Mm -hmm. we can, it's like you have four children. You'll take care of your favorite child. Forget the other three. You can't do that. So this is what we're trying to, you know, try to make them understand. They stood tall, and I'm so appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. the people that walked for whatever reason they walked, I can't explain that. You're going to have to ask them. You're going to have to ask your senators and some of these people why they take the position they take. Let's move to the Middle East for a moment. Um, this has been uh, an almost intractable problem, challenge uh, for administrations going back decades. Yeah. Um, and it's a very important issue. It's not one that can be ignored. How do you see it? Well, first of all, October 7th was a horrible day. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it showed the tensions. I mean, it's been there forever, okay, but it came to a boil to where you had this type of uh, atrocities happening to human beings, to uh, each human, human beings doing that to them, each other. It's unbelievable. Uh, we, I, support, uh, I support Israel. I've always supported Israel. 
But Israel has a responsibility to be a good neighbor also from that standpoint. And with that, a two-state solution, well, you have to have two willing partners. And they're talking about it's all about the Israel not wanting. It goes back and forth depending on who's the leadership there. But the Palestinians have never showed any type of desire to have to recognize Israel. I don't think the Americans are going to be able to intervene there and solve that. It's going to be the Arab and Muslim world that solves that. And it's going to be the Saudis, UAEs, Emirates. It's going to be Egypt. It's going to be all of them taking care of their own neighborhood to make sure that there can be peace and no one's going to be living in, in, in abject poverty as the Gazans were, Palestinians in Gaza. And, you know, it's just humanity crisis at the highest. And I do believe that Israel being as, as targeted and as, as, as strategically calculated as they can be, could have done better on how they went in at the beginning. And some of the... Better uh, in what way? Well, better in basically protecting civilian casualties. But the bottom line is, and I would say this to all of you, if you look at civilized countries who have uh, differences and they end up going to war, there's the rules of war that civilized countries adhere to. Uh, terrorists, basically, and, and civilized countries use their war machines to protect their people. Terrorists use their people to protect their war machines. That tells you what we're dealing with and the mentality. You have to eradicate terrorism anywhere, any place that it raises its ugly head. So I agree that they have to wipe out. Hamas cannot have a foothold. You can't be taking all the humanitarian aid and telling me your people are still in abject poverty and you're building elaborate tunnel systems and a whole war machine underground. You can't do that. That's got to be eliminated. If it's not, it'll come back with a fervor. So I, 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 uh, they said, the, do, you, do you believe in a ceasefire? I believe in humanitarian pauses. We've got to make sure that we're getting humanitarian aid to the people. And basically, we have known over the years that has not happened. What you're saying sounds like you are in alignment with the Biden administration with how the president has handled this issue. Yeah, I don't think they've been all that wrong on that. They're putting pressure now to be more strategic, and they should. But a ceasefire just allows Hamas to reload, okay? How do you protect the people, the innocent people that are left? I don't know how you protect unless they eventually they're going to have to know they've got protection to say Hamas is not going to be able to use us as a human shield for them. They have to realize what the dangers they're put in. I don't know how you eliminate that unless you have the Muslim and Arab world and people around them that have been able to find peace. Do that. And I think that Iranians were upset because the, uh, the peace talks were going pretty well with the Saudis. And that just uh, that was something they weren't going to tolerate. Another topic that um, never goes away in America these days is gun violence. Yesterday in Kansas City, there was a shooting at the parade that was supposed to celebrate the Super Bowl victory yeah. of the Kansas City football team. Um, what should be done? Well, first of all, uh, Sandy Hook shooting back in 2013, I, I, 2012, 2013, I just couldn't believe. I was in New York. I, was gonna, I had some meetings, and I was going to be on one of the TV shows in the morning, and my staff called me. It happened on a Friday, and the staff called me, and they knew I was in New York, and he says, we don't think you should go on because we're going to ask you about this, this, and this, uh, about guns. And I come from a gun culture, okay, in West Virginia. <clears throat> in West Virginia, if you don't have a gun when you get there, we'll get you one. <laughs> now, the bottom line is we're going to make sure you know how to handle it. 
we're going to make sure you're responsible. We just don't give them out to everybody. So we have a little gun sense. If you're raised in an area with gun sense, you don't, you don't sell your gun to strangers. You don't even loan your gun to an irresponsible family member. You're taught gun etiquette. You're talking about gun sense. And that's what we don't do anymore. We're just letting it go. This is wild, wild west. Anybody in the world come out of a mental institution, go tomorrow and buy a gun. It's crazy. This is all craziness. So I introduced a bill. It's a Manchin-Toomey bill, which is, which is uh, background checks. I'm thinking, well, at least we shouldn't have an open situation where we have loopholes to where you can go to a gun show and you can go find a table that they don't require any background checks at all. And Internet sales, all this going on. So we wrote that bill, and I thought for sure it'd be pretty a slam dunk. We needed 60 votes. We got 56. And four Democrats vote against it, and the Republicans vote against it because they didn't want any. Uh, I had John McCain vote for it, and I had, uh, of course, to me and a few people, but not many. And for some reason, they think, well, it's the Second Amendment's right. We're not taking your guns away. We just want to make sure that you know how to use it and responsible. And I'll give you an example. A 1934 gun law, machine guns. Remember back then, you see the old, old movies with the Tommy gun, Tommy guns and all mm -hmm. that. Uh, they never outlawed them. They just made them pretty difficult, basically, for responsible people. They made a fee. I think it was $200, which would be like 4000 today. To have a permit, you had to show competency and you had to show mental competency and the ability to use a gun the proper way. We've never had a mass shooting with a Tommy gun, okay? But now we've got the AK, you know, all this uh, AK uh, rifles and automatics and semi-automatics and made into full automatics, and we can't do anything about it. So I've said this, that I'm not banning anything. I'm going to make sure, and I will vote, to make sure that only responsible people that can show they can pass a competency test and have it for the right reason. And some guns that shouldn't be on the street should basically, you should pay if you're a sportsman or a collector, you should have a right to buy it. You can buy any car you want, buy any house you want, you can buy almost anything in the markets that we have. But on the other hand, there's a certain amount uh, of responsibility the person should have to have very lethal weapons. And that would be the best way to approach it. We can't get anything passed. And you now can still carry. Every policeman will beg you, Please do not pass a concealed carry bill. That means no, no laws, no rules, no nothing. And the people that are opposing that, that want just absolutely no restraints on gun ownership, they'll say, well, but the enemy, I mean, the criminals, uh, they have, they're concealed. And the policeman will say, yeah, we know who we're looking for. We don't walk into the OK Corral shootout. Because if everyone has a concealed weapon, we're looking for the criminal, and a gun comes out, everybody pulls their gun and starts shooting. No, that's not, we're not going to put ourselves in that position. And this lawlessness right now, the crime that goes on in every city and every town, and the threat, you know, I, I have 10 grandchildren. I'm concerned when they tell me where we're going to go to the mall, go shopping, or we're going to the grocery store with, with your grandma or your mom. And every time they say they're going somewhere, it scares the bejesus out of me. How about the people going to a parade yesterday? just to celebrate a Super Bowl parade. Can you believe it? No. Only in America, only in America we let this continue. And everyone's afraid, oh, it might cost me some votes. Well, hell, if it costs you some votes and that's what you gotta vote for, why would you wanna be there anyway? Doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you can't sell your soul to be in these positions. You can't sell who you are. I, the only thing I'm gonna tell you all is this. The quality of the character, the person that you send there, that person is the character of that person putting, and you can tell, I've always said where I come from, little country, I, I come from a, 
a little town, about 400 people, a little coal mining town. And I said, still to this day, if I can go home and explain, I'll vote for it. But they can shake your hand, look in your eye, and see your soul. You can't BS them. That's all they got. And they can tell right now, are you in it for the right reason or in it for yourself? And I know you all can too. Most Americans can. You can tell a person has just blind ambition, will do anything, say anything for you to support them and vote for them. And they say, give me money. And I would tell you this. When a politician asks you for money, he says, I'm sorry. I don't give contributions to politicians. I'm willing to make an investment. What can I expect from you? Say that to them. See what they do. Well, I'm, you know, this person, they'll start telling you how bad their opponent is. Well, I don't care about your opponent. I care about you. You're asking me for money. I want to know what I'm going to get for my investment. I've made good investments all my life. I'm not going to make a bad one on you. Start putting, this is what we're taught. Americans together is trying to give you the knowledge and courage you need to stand up and fight against the craziness we're getting and the people that are going there with the wrong, with the wrong uh, integrity. They, they just don't have it. One last question for me, and then yeah, we're going to sure. open it up okay. to questions from the audience. Um, uh, if Americans together sort of hypothetically were to put together, say, a third-party ticket for the White House with Joe Manchin on it, who would be the other person on that ticket, just hypothetically? <laughs> hypothetically speaking, yeah. i got to give you the story, but this is, you, you led into a story that you're going to love. <laughs> John Kennedy's running for president in 1960, and he has to win West Virginia because of the, politi- uh, because of the religious vote. We're... we're I'm one of the few Catholic families in the whole darn state, I think. But no, there's only about 3% of us are Catholic. So anyway, my parents were all excited. There's this young, young uh, politician coming to West Virginia and everything. So anyway, the Kennedy was down in southern West Virginia. And there was a man called uh, Raymond Chafe, and we called him Catfish. He was a political operative. And he controlled like an old political boss. And uh, this is the story. Now, whether it's true or not, I'm just going to give you the story. And uh, the story is this, that Bobby Kennedy would have breakfast with him every morning. He says... Catfish, I need you to be for my brother. He says, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hubert Humphrey guy. I love Hubert. He's my man. And they said, we know that. And he says, well, I'm organizing for Hubert. Okay, we know that, but we think you really fit with us. They kept trying that every day. One Friday, he said, Bobby Kennedy came in. They sat down. He says, hypothetically speaking, Catfish, what would it cost for you to be for my brother? And they said, Catfish says, you know, I'm, I'm for Hubert. He says, hypothetically which is what you're, what you're doing right now. He's, he's baiting me hypothetically. <laughs> but hypothetically speaking, uh, what would you do? Uh, he says, how much would it cost? He says, well, hypothetically, but strictly hypothetically, about 35. Not another word was spoken, about 35. Bobby Kennedy goes wherever he goes, supposedly, and he comes back on Monday, has a paper sack and throws it at him. He said there was 35,000 in there. He said, Joe, I meant 3,500, but we didn't waste a penny of it. (laughs) I'm not saying that's a true story or not, but that's the way it was. It's a good story. That's the way it's been told in West Virginia all Uh these years. So hypothetically, if I was picking my running mate, I would ask ask really who I would ask right now is Mitt Romney. Maybe Rob Portman. Okay. Rob Portman would be right there, too. Rob's a dear friend of mine. What a, what a good man. What a good man. He's yeah. a good friend of the city folks as well. Senator Joe Manchin, friends. Uh, 
All right, you guys, you know the drill. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. Lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> For our live stream audience or those just joining us, I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and moderating our conversation with Senator Joe Manchin, who is doing a listening tour right now with an organization called Americans Together. They do have a slogan, and since this isn't on the air yet, I'm just going to tell you what the slogan is. It's, let's get shit done. Um, and so That wasn't my idea, gang. But just, I like it. I am just reporting that. It has a, yeah, anyway. Um, it has a certain ring to it. Um, we do welcome you, questions you show, from... Show me a picture. Do you show me your T-shirt? There's a T-shirt. There's a T-shirt. And it's not theirs. It's actually Downtown Cleveland's T-shirt, the down, formerly known as the Downtown Cleveland Alliance, in celebration of one of their employees who left, um, who left there a few... Uh, I just think it was just last summer, right? They produced these T-shirts that just say, get shit done. And they're lovely, and I have one, and I, I wear one proudly. Thing, I want to say one thing about my affection to Cleveland. Growing up as a boy in, in the little Farmington, West Street, number nine, the coal mining towns, uh, Cleveland Browns was somebody, I, I mean, I, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, but the Cleveland Browns is very close. Oh, you really don't. Like you all. But Cleveland Browns is very close to my heart, but let me tell you why. I don't know if any of you remember the name, Frank Gunner Gatsky, center for the Cleveland Browns, late 40s, early 50s. He was from my hometown. He lived three doors down from Sam Huff. Oh. Sam Huff, New York, you know, New York Giants, all that. So these guys come from my little high school. So this is what I had to live up to. But I, I never autogram. They asked him autogram. He says in one of his biographies, they said, "How come? How, how do you gauge your success? How were you so successful?" He said, "I had Gunnar Gatsky in front of me. He was my center. Gunnar Gatsky was the toughest human being I ever met in my life. I've never seen a more rugged, tough human being." And he came here, and we used to just adore him. He came wearing all his Cleveland. He wore all of his paraphernalia when he came back to Sam's pool room, little pool room in Farmington, number nine, a community, coal mining community. And we just thought the world of him. But that was my, that was my first intro to Cleveland. That's a great intro. I, I do need to just say that if you want to, everybody's invited to, question, to offer questions, including our students who are with us from the City Club Youth Forum Council. What's up, guys? Um, if you'd like to text a question for our speaker, 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794, and we'll work it into the program. Let's go to our first question. Yes, sir. Good morning. Thank Good you morning. for coming to Cleveland. Thank you for having me. Hypothetically speaking, if you were to run as an independent candidate, who do you believe your Democrat uh, opponent would be? Well, boy, well, it's hypothetical. You took this a whole nother level. I know, it's that. Sorry. Guys, listen, I'm not running for anything. I'm basically running to try to get people involved, okay? So we'll, we'll, get, we'll make sure of that right now. That's today. Uh, I think if you're handicapping today, you're going to have Joe Biden and Donald Trump rematch. That's the handicap you have. You'll know for sure on Super Tuesday. And that's what everyone's waiting to see what happens on Super Tuesday. Uh, the third party, you damn alluded, it's, that's a tough, that's a tough road. It's never been done. Never been done. The system was set up not for that to be done. That's oh, Abraham, the problem. The, the Republican Party was once a third party. They were. Well, yeah, you had Bull Moose, you had everything else, you had Teddy Roosevelt and yeah. all that, and they came out as Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. But I'm saying, but they were designed not to have a European model. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have kind of a strong system. And electoral count, electoral vote kind of took that out of reach, and Ross Perot proved that, and he was the last one that we saw with any type of notoriety and everything going on. So I understand that. Uh, but I think you're going to have a Joe Biden and Donald Trump rematch if nothing changes. Things could change. You know, uh, you have Super Tuesday is going to be, what, about a month away? 
-hmm. And that's a lifetime in politics. So a lot could be changed. We'll see. Thank you. Welcome to Cleveland, Senator. Thanks for being here today. So uh, prior to joining the legislature, I was a school teacher uh, for 30 years uh, in a school district nearby. And um, one of the reasons I ran for the legislature uh, was because I'm concerned about the vitriol in our politics. And I wanted to be a role model for sure. my colleagues, for my constituents, and for young people. Um, and in fact, once I brought my students here to hear uh, uh, Olympia Snow uh, from Maine, um, and she was leaving the Senate because she was concerned about the vitriol, and she said she could do more on the outside, on the inside, very much uh, similar to what you're saying yeah. today. Uh, Steve LaTourette, who, who is a good friend to many of us here in the room, said the same thing, but things have gotten worse. So how on earth are you going to be different than them and, uh, and help end that vitriol on the outside rather than be on the inside? I mean, what do we be left when, when folks like you who are willing to work with folks on the other side of the aisle are gone and we're left well, with let's, let's, the folks let's, on the let's, extremes? Let's think of where we are. We have a lot of career politicians, okay? People stay forever. <clears throat> and I've seen that. I never used to be for term limits. I am now, and I'll tell you why. I was given. I was in a uh, town hall meeting in Southern West Virginia. It had to be 15 years ago, uh, and a lady got up in the back. She said, "Joe, we should, she said, how do you feel about term limits? And we hope you support them." I gave her all the reasons why I didn't support them. I thought you lose too many qualified people, too many people with experience, and you want to keep those people involved. And then she looked at me. and She said, "Joe." But think about this. If we had term limits, maybe we'd get one good term out of you. I couldn't argue with her. I had no comeback. She converted me, and I've been for term limits ever since. I believe the Supreme Court should be one 18-year term. I believe the state's U.S. Senate, I, see the, I believe the president should be one six-year term. I believe the U.S. Senate should be two six-year terms. And I believe that the House should be six two-year terms. So you have 12 and 12 in Congress. And then you have a six-year term for president. Don't have to get reelected. Do what that needs to be done for the country. And, uh, and then one 18-year term for the Supreme Court so you don't have a situation where it's a lifetime, good, bad, or indifferent. So Americans Together is just a Trojan horse for a constitutional convention? Good bet. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do whatever it takes to get people involved. And we got enough support in, in the super PAC that, that Heather's put together there. And we'll, we're going to use that to get... Demo we're going to support Democrats and Republicans, independents, and everyone in between that came for the right reason, putting country before self. And sometimes we're going to identify people, not because of their party affiliation, but because of the type of temperament they have, the type of ability and the skill sets, and getting people involved. It's, there's people, and then also the primary. How do you get in a primary? Well, my friend Lisa Murkowski from Alaska would never have gotten elected one for jungle, jungle primaries. It's right, what we call it. Uh, Majority choice, choice voting. Ranked choice voting. Yeah, ranked choice. They, they call it all different things. But I'm telling you, people that don't have political backing, people that might be very independent and parties can't control, and the party says, we're going to primary you and get rid of you. Well, the party shouldn't have that much control to get rid of you just because you don't meet the party standard or the business litmus, litmus test that they have. And you're going to say, well, fine, I'll take my, my case to the, uh, to the people. And you have a chance that way. So I think we can attract more people, but we have to teach people how to do it. And then when you have out of 435 congressional districts and 380 are already cooked, when I say cooked, they're already set because the lines are drawn so crazy to make sure you're either going to get a Democrat or Republican, hell or high water. Donald Duck should win in some if he's a DNR. It doesn't matter. That's just what that, those, those, those districts are designed. Ohio is very familiar with gerrymandering. I know. 
Yeah. Well, Every state is. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, a topic is uh, is gun violence, and uh, it's uh, we watched this past week as I think for the first time um, a mother was convicted uh, for allowing access, her, her son essentially having access and going in and shooting up a school. Um, I come from Chardon. Chardon, we have had uh, a school shooting, yeah. and so it's a it's a topic very uh, close to many of us out there. Um, my 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 uh, thoughts are, and I'd like to get your opinion because of your. Um, your West Virginia gun uh, gun, gun culture cu gun culture um, you know I think one of the reasons that you only got 56 votes was because anytime anyone talks about this topic everybody gets their back up the gun owners get their back up because you're talking about government interference in them acquiring and maintaining uh, some type of uh, you know uh, some re reasonable etiquette with guns and and they don't like that because it's a matter of government overreach and it seems to me now that we have this uh, this uh, ruling on the on the mother we are allowing uh, some other party uh, to be somewhat responsible for someone's behavior with an an ill-gotten gun or legally gotten gun whatever so my proposal is can we not find a way to push this down into the community so that a gun owner for example must get three people to sign up as his sponsor that basically says you are, um, you have the etiquette, you have the mental capacity to handle a gun properly. However, if something happens, then those people tend to be, will be responsible in some form uh, for, for that, uh, that misguided sponsorship. And then if one of those persons backs out along the way because they say, you know, this person's shown some behaviors that, uh, you know, don't fit with owning a gun. All of a sudden we have a red flag that says, okay, um, you know, uh, it's, a it's a community effort is my point. I got you. Yeah. Let me just say pushing. where I think you're coming from. All that's great. You've got things in place right now if we just enforce them. Red flag laws, okay. The parent, I think, I think that sends a very good and strong message that you're going to be held accountable. You know better than that. But you have to enforce the red flag laws too. There's no red flag laws in the state that she was at where this happened. So there's a little bit of help, no, no assistance, whatever, from that. That doesn't excuse the parents at all. And I think she took her son knowing that he had mental, a mental you know, incapacitation, certainly, that he allowed that to go to that level to where she was even taking him to gun shooting ranges. Totally irresponsible. But red flag laws, I think, are something that can be very good. Mental illness, adjudication of mental illness, when they've been adjudicated and they're incompetent, it should be mandatory to go to all communities from the standpoint to the city, to the county, knowing that we have someone in that situation. You can get to that foul. There's no protection on it. We need to know people that should not have it. You know, we outlawed, uh, uh, when I say we, the legislature way back when, the Brady Laws. You know, for 10 years, you couldn't get an automatic weapon. We had nobody going up and, you know, excuse the pun, nobody getting up in arms about that. It was there for 10 years, and then as soon as it went off, the whole thing went crazy. And then the gun manufacturers, and when you look at the NRA, I was a lifetime member of NRA up until I still am. I guess I have a card. They haven't revoked it. I'm sure they don't recognize me. Uh, and, but the thing of it is, it was basically a gun ownership. Since they taught us, it was, I had an Eddie, when I, was in, when I was governor, we had an Eddie Eagle program because a lot of families had guns. So we wanted to make sure the children knew how they should handle a gun safely. So we had classes by expert teachers on gun sense that would go to the schools if you wanted to, and your child could be enrolled if you wanted it to, to learn what they could and could not and how they should handle firearms and what to, how they're properly. 
to be handled. So we've done everything we can to educate. We quit doing that. NRA turned strictly towards the high-end marketing and basically a front for all the manufacturers. You know, when they're starting, you know, with the guns and the bullets and everything else to come, that's what they're advertising. They're not playing to the membership. And so on what you're saying, I, I agree with all of these things that we can do to prevent. The bottom line is, how do you get people with responsible ownership? If you don't even have to take a test to have a concealed weapon, in West Virginia you had to pay $200, and you had to go and show competency, and you had to go take a test. And you had to basically reapply. Re, re, uh, you just couldn't keep it forever, one and done. That went out the window when the legislature changed. My state changed from, and, and the state of West Virginia went from an 80% for 83 years, we were 80% Democrat state, registered and voting. We switched to an 88% Republican state within one decade. Flipped completely. And so you can look at that. But right now, we just need to get some, some common sense in that, sir. And I think it starts, yeah, referendums, uh, you know, things of that sort and how you do it. But we can't even get background checks. And what you're asking for is to get three people to sign off. I just want to make sure that we can make sure that you're not crazy about, you know what, if, if, to get something that you shouldn't have it. We just came get that first step done. Yes, sir. Go ahead. My question relates to campaign finance reform. Many years ago, I lived until I was in the early 20s sure. on an, up on the Morongahela River, not far from where you were living. And I was elected city councilman, one of the youngest. They lowered the age from 25 to 21. I was elected city councilman, got to be the deputy mayor, and I had aspirations to grow up to be Joe Manchin. Oh, boy. You know, really. And, and the thing that stopped me from running for office was one word, money. And it's gotten worse. Horrible. From when I was years ago. So my question is this. You started today's comments with something that I think is at the center of the problem in this country with your statement about the influence of big business. And my, I grew up as a little kid with a small business and a steel worker family, and my dad would always say, you can't beat the big man. Watch the big man. That's what my dad raised me on. So how important is campaign finance reform to help moderate U.S. politics? And the second question is, how can we get Americans to understand how important it is to reform campaign finance. Well, let me just tell you this. I, I will say this. My, my daughter, Heather, basically is put together, and you're going to be able to get online and see all this stuff. Americans together, what we've been able to do is show the finances. Citizens United has unleashed a barrage of money coming. It's just unbelievable to where basically corporations are de dealt the same as individuals. What happened is they missed the opportunity. Labor always had PACs way back when. So labor had control of votes. And, they, and, and businesses were always upset, and they were basically didn't have an equal opportunity. They could have sat down when they, before they decided, Citizens United said, listen, we're going to treat business and labor the same. You're allowed to have PACs in business. You're allowed to have PACs in labor. But it's going to be disclosed. We know where the money's going. We know where it's coming from. They could have done that. They still could do that now, but they won't. Both sides benefit from Citizens United. Democrats raise more hell about it, but they both benefit. When it comes time to vote, would they get rid of it? I'm not sure. I don't think so, either side, but it should be done. That has ruined it because, you know, not knowing, I don't mind a person being able to spend their own wealth against me or having support as long as I know where that support's coming and the purpose of that support. But when I don't know any of that, and it's, you know, it's, it's the sisters of the poor uh, coming at me or, or the citizens for the children, and it really isn't, it's just a front, and they throw everything at you, 
uh, and you can't defend yourself. Sir, 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 we can't. We... Yeah, campaign finance reform is, is something that's it's, it's drastically needed. How you get the money out of it is going to be very difficult. The main thing you can do now is fight for transparency. You want to see every dollar where it's coming from so you can identify the purpose of that money being against you or for you or whatever. They should be able to see that. That's the easiest way to change it. Youth voice yes, sir. here represented. Go ahead, Senator sir. Senator Manchin, what motivated your decision to not seek re-election in the Senate in 2024? Probably everything you've seen on television the last week or two. Let me just say this. And again, I mean, I can say I've been at this for 42 years. So I started in 1982. I never intended to be in politics. I still don't really like politics. I like getting stuff done. So the, or, yeah, or the other way to say that. Yeah, the other way to say it. <laughs> I like getting stuff done, that's all. And I, the only reason I got involved in politics was I saw a guy come in one time who represented our area, and I worked with my dad, had a little furniture store, and I was helping him, and the guy asked the fur, says, John, I've done all these favors, and I need you to do this favor for me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, my dad's never asked for a favor. He'd ask you, can you help so-and-so over here, and this person needs help, or a road needs fixed. He'd ask you to do your job. The guy left, and I said, Dad, that's awful. That person basically is self-serving. He's not serving the public. Because he thinks everything he does is a favor and you owe it to him. That's bull. I said, I'm against that. So I ran against and I got involved that way. And I was a citizen legislature until 2000, Secretary of State and then Governor. And I got involved because every time I got involved, I was one of 100 House of Delegates. And I thought, boy, if I run for the state Senate, I'd be one of 34. I could help three times as many people. And then I said, boy, if I was governor, I'd be one of one. I could really do something. Well, I ran 1996 and got beat. That's the only one race I lost. And I never looked around and says, well, hey, Dan, it's your fault. You didn't work hard enough for me. My son was sitting with me, and I said, I saw the returns coming. We were going to lose. My daughter and we were all, everybody's crying. I said, no, no, we've won a lot of elections. We're going to lose this one because I didn't do the right thing. I didn't work hard enough. My message wasn't clear enough. I wasn't, I didn't do a good enough job. My name was the only one on the ballot. And I cannot stand it when politicians blame everybody but themselves. Nobody else was on the ballot but them. It's something you didn't run your campaign right. Your message wasn't right. Learn from that. So I've said from that day forward, I've never met a first person that's always wrong. But I've, I've met a lot of people that sometimes I walked, they walked away or I walked away thinking they were crazier than you know what. But that's because I didn't stay there long enough to get something, something useful. So remember this. Everyone's not always wrong. They got something to offer. There's value in every human being if you just spend enough time with them. But I've never met the first person who's always right. So with that, kind of give me that balance. Uh, uh, I didn't decide to run because I don't think I can fix it there. I've spent 14 years in the Senate. I've spent 40 years in public life. And I'm, I'm wanting to do this because I think that I can help, whether it's communities here in Cleveland, anywhere else, and help candidates that don't have a leg to stand on because they don't have the finances. We can help get finances, too, for the right people. I think we've got yes, time for one more question. Yeah, thank you for being here. I appreciate your comments. Um, this is a question about environment and climate. Yeah. Um, in the 19, uh, I'm sorry, the 2018 report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a code red for humanity, insisting that it's an imperative that we move now to stop burning fossil fuels if we are to keep our planet below the 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius tipping point. And two months ago, at COP28, the U.S. and 199 other nations agreed to transition away from fossil fuels in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. 
please explain why the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, of which you are chair, is at, please explain what the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee is doing um, to actively make certain that these critical climate goals are met in order to ensure a more livable planet for future generations. Absolutely, and everything you referred to was the climate for the planet. It's called global climate, it's not called US climate. And everyone thinks, I mean, we have been probably the greatest polluter over the year. We did more for humankind than any other, any other civilization has ever done. The United States, because of what we are and how we've grown the economy we've had, have brought more people out of poverty and help. But with that, we've reduced our emissions more in two decades than any other nation, any other civilized nation. 90% of all the pollution is gonna come, 90% uh, in the next 10 years will come from one continent, Asia. And if we can't teach them how to use it more economically, more climate friendly with technology, they're going to burn whatever they have. They're doing it. They're burning it and they're turning to coal and everything else. We can show them if you're gonna use coal, how to use it cleaner, how to sequester it, how to take the carbon off of it. But if people wanna leave it in the ground just because they wanna leave it in the ground, that's not what's going to happen. So where we do is what we've done when I did the IRA bill, Inflation Reduction Act, we have produced more energy than ever in the history of our country today. We're producing more energy, cleaner than anywhere in the world. We're displacing a lot of the dirtier fossil in the world. Now you can say, well, just eliminate it. They're not going to. And if they want to involved in our markets, they're going to have to use the technology we develop. Also, we're investing more for clean technology for the fuels of the future. Hydrogen, okay, SMR, small modular reactors. We have basically geothermal. We have battery storage. We're doing everything humanly possible to meet our climate needs and standards, but it's been a slug because you cannot leave yourself as the greatest country in the world and be energy dependent on foreign supply chains. We've seen what that's done. So we have to make sure that we're supporting it and doing it and producing it. And to ask other people, I'll give you a perfect example. The United States of America says, well, we're gonna quit using oil. Okay, we're gonna cut down, not, not drill, not give any type of, uh, of uh, pre permission to, to drill on BLM lands or Gulf waters or whatever you may, may be. What we were doing, turning a blind eye to the ghost ships coming out of Iran and allowing Iran to sell their oil for more money to make this destruction around the world and they're the greatest uh, proponents of terrorism around the world. We let Venezuela back into the oil market, produces oil dirty any place else. We asked Saudi Arabia to produce two billion more, two uh, billion barrels more, uh, two million a day more, because we needed it for the market. We didn't want to do it, we wanted to ask other people to do it, which is crazy. We produce it better than anybody else. So if you're going to use it, basically do it the best you can with technology. And you're going to say, well, we're going to eliminate it. It'll, it'll transition, you have to transition We've been transitioning with natural gas. Natural gas has replaced most of the coal that was being used, okay? Now they don't want natural gas. Natural gas is a much cleaner form in the transition, but they want to stop everything. You cannot, you tell me what five hours of the day that you want your energy, and I'll tell you that's what you'll get if, if you want everything to get away from fossil today. I'm not going to vote to take care of any, take anything off the market at all until I have something that will replace it and do the same thing. And I'm going to make sure whatever's out there today is doing it cleaner. We're producing gas now, capturing methane. If you don't capture the methane, you pay fines. We're doing every because we know technology is there. But sometimes they put regulations and you can't meet the technology because the technology has not been developed. So I said, if it's not feasible, it's not reasonable. Things, the common sense, you've got to have energy. Tell me, 
Okay, we don't go electric vehicles. Let me tell you about electric vehicle. We're enslaving people around the world to produce the critical minerals for the batteries. We have China has a total captive market. I've been fighting a living daylight, so I want, if you're going to develop EVs and we're going to have a transportation mode going electric, let's make sure that we have the manufacturing here. Don't put yourself in the hands of China delivering to you. And I says, I'm old enough to remember the 1974 oil embargo. You had to wait in line to get gas to go to work. I'm not going to wait in line to get a battery to go to work from China. I'm just not going to do it. So that's my leadership that I have, and I've been very clear, and, and, and I, I welcome everybody, and I know, and I'm, I'm sympathetic. I think there's a responsibility for everybody, for the climate. There's a responsibility for humanity, too, in understanding what's going on in the world. You know, you're 8 billion people. You've got 600 million people who have nothing, no energy. Up until just five years ago, you had most of rural India burning, uh, burning animal waste for their fuel. You think they care what's coming out of a smokestack? So if we can help India basically have a cleaner technology to the coal and all that, the appetite for coal is unbelievable in China and in India right now. So we're trying to show them how you can sequester it, how you can burn it cleaner, and the technology we've developed. Let me say this before we go. I want to apologize for my dress. Uh, uh, I had a nice suit really picked out for oh, you sure all. Oh, sure you did. I got a ticket, one-way ticket to Cleveland, but my suit took a round trip back to D.C. Yeah, that's the honest to God likely truth. Story. Dan, that's the honest to God story. truth. Senator Joe Manchin. Thank you all. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Hold on a second. I got a thing here. Senator Manchin, we are uh, so grateful to you for joining us on and, and including the City Club of Cleveland on your national listening tour with Americans Together. I want to mention that forums like this one are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like all of you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. Our forum today is the annual Bolton Forum on National Politics, which celebrates the lives of Chester Bolton, his wife, Frances Payne Bolton, and their son, Oliver Bolton. All three family members served in the U.S. House of Representatives with Francis and Oliver serving simultaneously, making them the first and only mother-son pair to serve in Congress. Bolton family is with us today. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. I want to also extend a special welcome to our students from the City Club Youth Forum Council. Great to have you with us. They've got a forum coming up later today. And tomorrow at the City Club, we welcome Steve Dettelbach. He is in charge of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and he will discuss strategies for combating gun violence in America. Next week, Tuesday, February 20th, we'll hear from the two CEOs of our region's top hospitals, Dr. Tom Mihaljevic of the Cleveland Clinic and Cliff McGarian with University Hospitals, and they'll discuss their partnership and their efforts to continue to improve the well-being in our communities. You can learn more about everything coming up at the City Club at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our forum. Senator Manchin, once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.